Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter, and before I introduce our storyteller, just a, a nod and acknowledgement to Katie and her team. Can we give them a round of applause, please? <laughs> uh, I get to bear witness to all of the work and the deliberation and the um, just stewardship that I uh, see Katie and the team put into every single Sunday. There's a lot of care that goes into it, and um, it's not lost on us, so thank you. Uh, I want to introduce a great storyteller today, Mr. Education himself, Bill Safestrom. Bill, where are you? Come on up. Tell us a story. Thanks, Peter. Good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Safestrom. And uh, my lovely wife, Janet, and I have uh, three grown children, and we've been members of Evergreen Covenant Church for 40 years, uh, since before we were married, actually. Um, and I'm happy to share this story with you. Uh, well, last week, I appreciated Pastor Peter emphasizing the importance of Christians developing an identity focused on Christ that doesn't follow the herd and is even separated from parents and family. Uh, my story today highlights an equally, I think, uh, but opposite true counterpoint. Um, and that is that connections are also critically important to our faith. In uh, 2 Corinthians, or now Peter's changed it up for me, in 1 Corinthians, uh, and in all his letters, uh, whether praising, exhorting, scolding, or encouraging, the Apostle Paul came alongside others as a patient mentor. He was open about his own faults and struggles, even as he modeled the life of faith and urged his hearers to continue to be steadfast in their own faith. Well, I have been blessed in my own spiritual journey by the prayers and undeserved encouragement and opportunities provided by a long list of Pauls and Paulines. Uh, you all know this par Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, the gospel seed that is planted can flourish in good soil, but is stunted and choked out in bad soil, uh, while only the Holy Spirit can plant that seed and cause it to germinate. Anyone can care for the condition of the soil. Uh, one of my favorite commentators on life was Jim Crockett. Uh, if you're old enough, uh, you might have watched Crockett's Victory Garden on PBS. Um, in chapter 11 of the Victory Garden book that he wrote, uh, he titled, uh, titled November, um, page 247, he wrote this. There is nothing that matters more in gardening than soil preparation. So even though we give the Victory Garden such loving attention in the fall and in the spring, we continue to monitor the soil all through the growing season. Uh, in my garden... Uh, the growing season might be 50 to 75 days. For a Christian, the growing season might be 50 to 75 years or more. Uh, so it's very unlikely for one gardener or mentor to monitor a Christian's soil from beginning to end. Um, God calls many people to participate for a season in monitoring the spiritual soil of others. And as Christians, we must continually look for new mentors for that help. Well, uh, like 
Peter, I uh, think, said, and, and some others, I am a skeptic, and uh, my soil is uh, impervious to many things. So as I look back, I'm humbled to realize how my life has been continually blessed through the lives and patient mentoring of other Christians who modeled Christ's love. They challenged me, uh, envisioning future spiritual growth that was nowhere to be seen at the time, uh, and continued to believe when that growth was slow in coming. Uh, my list begins with my godly grandparents and parents. Uh, but my spiritual models also included parents of my church friends, like Wes Carlson, Dr. Alice Kretz, Olga Swanson. It also includes Covenant Beach Elementary Camp counselors like Everett Costa and Bob Berquist. Pastor Halston, who taught a very rigorous confirmation class at First Covenant Church. And that new, young, cool, and approachable pastor in the North Pacific Conference, Bud Palmberg. Um, Evelyn Benson, our junior high league advisor who was committed to serving the people of Seattle's Central District and who always responded to me with grace, uh, even when I caused part of the church ceiling to fall in. Uh, Jerry and Joanne Walquist, our high league advisors, who uh, were very patient with us and also modeled young, uh, young Christian marriage for us. Steve Tatchell, Doug Burley, Connie Jacobson, who yet led uh, Young Life Bible Studies during high school and college. Cliff McGrath, my college soccer coach, who I think was very surprised to learn that the Holy Spirit used the words he spoke to our team one night to lead me to recommit my life to Christ. Betty Rata, who chaired the uh, conference uh, Christian Education Committee, she must have seen something uh, in me and hired me at uh, Highland Covenant Church. Dr. Al Green, who will always be my model of humble servant leadership and consistent biblical thinking. Skip Lee, who trusted me to substitute for him in his Sunday school class here, uh, but insisted on quizzing me on my biblical understanding first. Uh, John Perkins and Wandam Desalenia, who modeled how to forgive unjust imprisonment and suffering and still serve God with joy. Many more than these few invested their lives in me. Uh, many of them are now in heaven. None of them know yet whether their investment in me will finally be worth the effort at all, except they know that God is faithful. Well, uh, my need for soil monitoring never ends. Uh, for example, last Tuesday at our monthly small group of retired Bellevue Christian School teachers, administrators, and uh, one board member, one of the retired teachers, Joel Ulrich, uh, shared this hymn with us, an old uh, Scottish free church hymn. And I realized that especially lately I have overdeveloped my spiritual gift of holy criticism uh, to the neglect of cultivating a heart of praise. So uh, let me just read that one part that I've highlighted there. Not for the lip of praise alone, nor even the praising heart, I ask, but for a life made up of praise in every part. So that's what I'm working on now. How healthy is your soil? Who do you interact with to monitor the health of your soil? What undeserving child, teen, or adult receives God's grace and encouragement from you and observes you as you model the life of faith.
Thanks for listening to my story. Thank you. Uh, this morning, our scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3 from chapter 8 in the New English Translation. With regard to food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. But knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If someone thinks he knows something, he does not yet know to the degree that he needs to know. But if someone loves God, he is known by God. The word of the Lord. One day we will know what that sign says. <laughs> Tis not this day. <laughs> Kids, have a great Sunday. I loved our uh, praise time today. I love the words. I love the energy. Uh, the idea that I love the most is uh, when Katie was reading that uh, Romans 1 passage about how God has made plain and evident to us the fact that he is God. We don't have to search far and wide to uh, have this feeling that God exists. You know, we uh, step outside, we look up to the mountain. And we realize how small we are. And then we just feel like, oh, there must be a God because I'm so small. I didn't make that. I didn't make me. Who made all this? And the natural and normal thought is to believe that there is a creator God. That's what the Bible says. And in order to deny that truth, you have to exert energy. You have to actively suppress that conclusion. And so there is a way that in the long run, uh, the truth about God is going to win because you don't have to do anything to believe in God. You just have to be. You just have to be honest. You just have to stop fighting the truth. Right? So eventually you're going to get tired and you're going to come to believe in God. I love that uh, about uh, truth in general, that there are truths that resonate with me. And I can't deny the resonance. And so I have to wrestle with it. And it sort of begins to hold me. It has a grip on me and I submit to it. And today's sermon topic is one of those. Uh, we're going to talk about game theory. And I'm not a game theory expert. I barely know anything. But one aspect of it is what I want to use because I experience the reality of game theory every day. And the way we're going to talk about it today the way I experience it, there is a call upward. There's a constant impulse in me to lift my eyes up beyond the current game to a higher game to even a higher game. There's a, always a pull upwards. So, for example, if I go to work and I'm doing a task, something in me asks a question. Why am I doing this task? What is it for? This short game that I'm playing. There is a longer game that it's embedded in, and I want to know what it is. Oh, it's to make my manager look good. Got it. That's the long game. Okay, my manager looks good, then what? What happens if my manager looks good? Then the company does better, makes more money. The company becomes something, a tribute to the founder. Is that the end game? And so you keep asking higher questions. There's a constant invitation to look up. And 
I, as a follower of Christ, somebody who wrestles with being a follower of Christ, want to know, well, what's the ultimate? How high am I supposed to look? Why do I keep looking above? And uh, somebody like Abraham Maslow comes along and says, you know, actually, it's not self-actualization that's the ultimate game. But when you get to self-actualization, you realize, oh, the self isn't it either. And so you are invited to look above that, and then you see transcendence. There's a call to live a life beyond even self-actualization. There is self-transcendence, where you give yourself away. The call ultimately is not to live, but to die. And when we get there, we know why we are called to die, because it's not about our life, but it's about God's glory. And we exist in service to that purpose. So that's the truth that we have to actively suppress. But once, you know, you get tired and you realize, oh, I guess maybe there is an invitation to look up. And so that's what I want to talk about uh, today in game theory. Let's define game theory first. Uh, The study, this is Wikipedia. This is not like crazy research here. Just page one of Google, the first link. The study of math. By the way, I learned this week that Wikipedia is the fifth most visited website in website like history. So that's pretty amazing. The study of mathematical models of strategic interaction between rational decision makers. Game theory applies to a wide range of behavioral relations and is an umbrella term for the science of logical decision making in humans, animals, and computers. In other words, game theory says life is a game. And the objective of the game is to get that thing that's scarce. There's more of you than there is of that. And so we're fighting to get that. That's the objective. In order to get that, because it's a game, we need rules. What are we allowed to do? What are we supposed to do? What's the cause and effect? What's the gravity here? What are the laws in play in this universe that the game belongs to, right? And so you strip away emotions and attachments and cognitive biases and sunk costs and other things, and you get to the information, the knowledge that's relevant, and then you use that knowledge to get the thing before somebody else gets the thing, and then you win the game. That's the game of life, and game theorists are asking the question, well, what information is relevant? How do we get there? So when the Pentagon is planning a war, for example, they're using game theory. When a country is in trouble and we want to help the country, we use game theory. When you have uh, somebody you want to pursue, uh, 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 you know, a guy or a girl, and you want, to, you want to win them, you play the game. If I text these words in this timing with these number of punctuation marks, then it's going to create an effect on that person. They're going to have a feeling. They're going to text me back, and then we're going to escalate the game, and I'm going to ask them for, uh, you know, coffee or something, and then that's the game. We know this. Life is a game, and when you acknowledge it as a game, then you get really focused on how to win the game. Seth Godin, an author that I uh, really respect, and I actually used his little book, The Dip, uh, quite a bit when I first came here six years ago. Uh, But I'm kind of sort of rediscovering uh, Seth, and he has really a nice way to teach game theory. And he taught me this in the last two weeks. 
Uh, first, he says that uh, games exist in two categories. There is the finite game and the infinite game. All games fall into these two categories. And he says the finite game consists of two kinds of games. The first is the short game. And the short game is focused on the now. I'm thirsty. I need water. I'm going to walk to the water fountain. I'm going to go to the kitchen. I'm going to get a glass. This is the short game. Right? There's an immediate felt need, and then you try to meet that need. I need money. Go make the money. I need a win. Score the points. Right? And then there is the long game. And the long game really is asking the questions uh, about later. You know, I don't want this now. I don't want to make money now, but I want to make an investment. I want to make a habit. I want to create a culture. I don't want to just go for a walk or a run. I want to have an exercise plan. I don't want to just have, I don't want to just exercise. I want to be healthy. I want to live long. I want to walk my girls down the aisle. I want to fight my diabetes that's in my gene pool. All that, this is the long game. It's delaying of the immediate gratification for longer-term gains. We all get this. And then he says there's a third kind of game. It's the infinite game. And this game is much later. And it's when you're not just getting things for yourself now. You're not just getting stuff for yourself later. You're thinking about your kids. You're thinking, what kind of legacy do I want to leave them? I don't want to just make money. I want to create wealth. In fact, I don't want to just create wealth. I want to teach my kids what money is. I don't want to just exercise. I want to build a park so that others can exercise in the park. Right? That's the infinite game. It's beyond yourself. And then there's a fourth category of games called the ultimate game. It's when you get to the telos or the end. This is the meaning of life. So you ask why questions. And ultimately, the why questions get you to the ultimate game. And so you are not just going to go for a walk. You're not just going to have an exercise plan. You're not just going to be a healthy person. But you are going to ask the question, why be healthy? What's the point of health? Does health reflect a greater reality? Why do I want to have a higher level of energy? What is that about? Oh, it's so that I can love? Why do I want to love? Where does love come from? Why love? And then you get to the author of love or the one who is love, and you get to God. Then that's the ultimate game when you are living for your deepest and truest whys. So we got the short game, the long game, the infinite game, and the ultimate game. Now, with this construct in mind, let's read the passage again. With regard to food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, in quotes. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If someone thinks he knows something he does not yet know to the degree that he needs to know, but if someone loves God, he is known by God. Having knowledge about the fact that there are no such things as lesser gods, because really there's only just one God. This is what a lot of new Christians were learning from Paul. The Corinthians were saying, I didn't know there was just one God. And this one God came to us as Christ. Yahweh sent his son Christ to die for us. 
And so there are no such things as idols because there's no such things as gods. There's only one God. So it doesn't matter what we eat. We can eat whatever we want. That's Christian truth. That's Christian freedom. I'm going to eat to my heart's content and not think about it. And then Paul says, time out. Time out. Slow your roll because you don't know everything. You think you know something, that there is no other gods. That food sacrificed to idols isn't a thing. So you feel you have the right to be free. But is that the game you're playing? What's the objective of the game? The objective of the game is not individual freedom. It's not knowing something and then using that knowledge and ignorance of other things you ought to know to play the game right. Paul says, actually, what you think you know is causing you to fail at the game because the game isn't your personal freedom, but it's actually love. And so by wielding your freedom and your knowledge about the fact that there are no such things as idols, you are losing the game by wreaking havoc on other people who are struggling with the very thing you claim you know. Right? So if you knew that somebody else next to you, your brother or sister, they're struggling because they know in their heads that there are no such things as other gods, but they are really having a hard time. This is what the Bible calls stumbling. They're really having a hard time living into that head knowledge. And so they need some sort of, they need a longer runway to that truth. And so they need time and they need patience, what the Bible calls love. Love is patient. Right? And so there's a call on you to wait. Even though you have knowledge now, the game dictates if you want to win the game and you understand the game as love, that you hold yourself back, be patient, absorb the discomfort and the loss of not being able to exercise your freedom for the greater good. That's the long game. But then Paul goes on to say, in fact, There's a game beyond your loving other people, and it's you understanding that all of that experience that you have of uh, loving somebody and all the ways you know how to love correctly because you have the right knowledge, all of that is all just pointing towards the ultimate game, which is God. So if it's not helping you to know God and to be known by him, then you're losing the ultimate game. The long game, the short game, the infinite game all amount to nothing unless you understand the ultimate game and that's to be known by god and this is what christians believe this is the meaning of life and so if you are here and you are a non-christian i know you have the questions about longer games i know that every time that your boss isn't doing the right thing that they should do as a boss and you are under their incompetence you ask the why question I know that every time you're violated, your values, or you're offended in some way, you ask why. What is the point of this? What is the meaning of this? This is what human beings do. We are always looking for higher knowledge. Now, what do you do with that? Where does that impulse to look up come from? If you are truly just an animal, if you're just a finite being, why are you so curious and feel invited to the infinite game? And I submit to you that God has put eternity on your hearts. 
that you understand that when you experience a mountain, you're being invited to look up beyond your current terrain. That when you are in, in the presence of real love, when you have a moment of looking into somebody's eyes and they're looking back into you, you see, you connect on a human level. You realize life is not just about getting things, but it's really about people, that people matter more than anything else, that everything that we call life exists to support human life. And you understand that. You're experiencing the eternity in your hearts. In other words, the short game must be firmly embedded in the long game. Always, because it is the long game that gives meaning to the short game. And then the long game has to be firmly embedded in the infinite game, or the, even the longer game loses meaning. And the infinite game has to be embedded in the ultimate game, because who cares if your generations are fine? What's all that for? It's just a circle of life. It's just more circles. And so you need an ultimate game, or really, what's the point? A few examples to illustrate these principles. Number one, uh, Paul Allen died this week, as probably all of us know. He was a local. He lives here, lived here, here on Mercer Island, and uh, he owned the Seahawks. I don't know what more do you need. But he made great contributions to this area and beyond. But this is his statement uh, that he came to. Our net worth, he says, is ultimately defined not by dollars, but by how well we serve others. He realized he has all the personal freedom in the world. He played the short game really, really well, better than most of us, maybe all of us. And then he came to realize it's not about personal freedom if I don't edify my brothers and sisters. He says, I want to ultimately be known by God. I want to come to know God. That's why I exist. It's not for the short game. And when he uses the term net worth, he's not talking about financial net worth, is he? He's talking about the whole of his worth. What makes his life worthy? It's to live a life beyond yourself because you by yourself are never worthy. But it's when you look beyond yourself, you find worthiness. So Paul <clears throat> May you find what you have been looking for. Second example is the elevator project. Uh, many people in this church gave to the elevator project. We are in the thick of it now. You see the beautiful staircase coming into being. You see the structure outside being built. It gives me so much joy when I come, into, come to church and I see people working. It just makes me happy. You know, it's such a great energy here. Um, some of you gave to the elevator project because you use a stroller yourself or you use a walker yourself. And if you gave to the elevator project because you either use a stroller or use a walker yourself, then you were playing the short game. Okay? If you gave because those you love and those who use our building need an elevator, but you don't personally use it, you're playing the long game. If you gave because you wanted our church building, whether it's evergreen or not, to have an elevator for generations to come, you were playing the infinite game, thinking beyond us. 
But if you gave because you wanted to bless God's heart, you wanted to model heaven here on earth, you wanted people, because they're God's creatures, to feel loved, whether you know them by name or not, then you are playing the ultimate game. <clears throat> Free wheelchair mission, Don Schoendorfer was here recently, and he talked about two different kinds of lists. He said one list is the fool's list. It's a fool's game because it consists of urgencies that are not important, that don't ultimately matter. It's a list of short games you have to play. And then he says that um, there's a second list, and it's the longer game. It's the infinite game. It's the ultimate game, list of things that you are called to do. And at some point, he realized he doesn't want to win in the fool's game. He wants to win with list B. He wants to do the things that really, really matter. So he felt called to live outside of the immediate to the long game. And so he started Free Wheelchair Mission. By the way, we're going to get to this later, but it's kind of in the back of my head, so let me say it now. I have no judgment about the short game versus the long game or the infinite game or the ultimate game. They're all games we are called to play well. And we'll get to that later. So there's no judgment uh, from me if you gave for different reasons and if you play for different reasons. Just FYI, we'll get to it in a second here. Don't be mad at me in the meantime. Uh, another story. Who are these guys? Anybody know these guys? Who are they? Mongers. The mongers, right? They are humoring me, and uh, last week I called for slippers, and they wore slippers to church, right? Uh, and I thought I'd use this picture because it just happened, uh, but also because grandparents are much, much better at playing the longer games than parents are. That's what makes grandparents so awesome, right? Parents are caught up in the short game, the immediate. They're looking down, fixing problems that are happening right now. The tyranny of the urgent is calling to the parents. And then the grandparents show up, and nothing matters. Everything is going to be okay, right? Because they have perspective. They can give the lollipop to their grandkids because they don't have to pay for dentistry, <laughs> the parents do. <laughs> and then if you're at work, if you're doing a good job, you have a good day, you're playing the short game. But when you want to serve your clients or create a different kind of culture at work, you're playing the long game. Money, when you're spending it, you're playing the short game. When you are investing it or stewarding it, you're playing the long game. By the way, speaking of money, you kind of come to realize really quickly that the longer the game, the less concrete the product. You know, so it makes it harder to play the long game. It's less visible. And then finally, for parenting, uh, it's just like sort of a stereotypical example, but when somebody, one of your kids, spills milk at the dinner table, your reaction gives away the kind of game mindset you are playing at the time. You know, so if somebody plays, uh, is playing the short game, a parent is playing the short game, and a kid spills a drink, then you have to use fear and condemnation to try to give yourself the best chance of them not spilling ever again in their life. And you know this, right? You got to grab them by the neck, by the throat, 
take your thumb and shove it down on their little heads. Make sure they get the message. This is not right. This is not cool. Never, ever spill milk again. That's the short game. But what do you lose in the long run? Their soul. <laughs> their spirit. They're done. They're done for the night. They feel awful. They feel condemned. They feel belittled and betrayed. You were so nice just five minutes ago. Right? And that's the longer game. If you, if you realize that and you're able to say, oh, honey, it's okay. Because inside you know when they've made an obvious mistake, when they do so blatantly what they should not have done, then that's a moment to actually be gracious to them. Because at that moment, what they deserve is condemnation, but what you're going to give to them is love and embrace. And you say, this is God's child. They don't belong to me. This is a child of the king. I just get, I'm just babysitting. I'm never, if they were, if the king was present, I would never yell at the king's child. It would be a privilege for me to clean up this kid's mess. I'm going to teach them about love and patience and kindness and absorption. I'm going to teach them how valuable they are, that they're created in God's image, that they belong to another, and I'm just a steward. Now, that's really the long game, right? But we have the opportunity to play at different levels. I have no judgment, as I said, uh, to any levels of games, and I recognize that all games are necessary. I recognize that it is 100% legitimate to give because you use a stroller or you don't use a stroller, but you gave money anyway to the elevator project. Both are equally valuable and necessary and legitimate. But here's what I'm going to tell you, that each game, each kind of game you play has a specific hierarchy. And this is the way it always needs to be, and you know this to be true, and this is a teaching of Scripture today that at the very dead center of our existence, the things that we are most immediately called to be good at is the short game. You have to be a responsible, conscientious being. You are called to bear the weight of humanity, your share of it, on your shoulders. You can't be uh, somebody who is mooching off of society. That's what Paul teaches so he says, he says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, for example. Right? Bear your own weight. The short game. Do the short game right. But recognize that the short game exists within a framework of the longer game. And if you lose sight of the longer game, you're not going to do your short game well. So going back to the parenting example, when your kid spills the milk, your best short game is informed by the long game. And if you lose sight of the long game, you're going to suck at the short game. So at that moment, when you're shoved into the short game, when you least expected it, you have to have the longer game immediately available to you because your mind is already bathed in the long game. You know the game you're playing with your kids is to love them. It's to create an environment for them. The game isn't so that nothing ever spills. That's not the game. The game isn't you are in control. And so when you have the long game informing the short game, you get better at the short game. 
And then the long game is embedded in the infinite game. It's not just about the child and their feelings and their sense of uh, being loved and uh, having a sense of self-worth at that moment. But it's about who they become. And it's the way they will parent. It's the way that's going to impact who they choose to partner with in life. Right? So there's an infinite game that informs the long game. And then this infinite game has to be embedded in the ultimate game. You have to have accessible to you the ultimate why. Why do I do what I do? I'll give you one example of this that I'm using, uh, that I've been using to think about my decision with Costco. You know that uh, Susie, my family and I, during my sabbatical, we were in a car incident where Costco had misinstalled the front left tire. It looks like they either cross-threaded it, that's what the mechanics told us, or they didn't, they didn't manually tighten it down after they used the gun and they didn't set it to the right torque level. Right? So the wheel was wonky and then it almost came off. We almost lost control of the car. It almost went off down a cliff. It was really a harrowing experience. And to this day, we are still struggling with it. We are still feeling trauma from it, right? Now, Costco paid for our car rental. They paid for uh, fixing the, uh, replacing and fixing the lug nuts and the, and the wheel itself. Uh, they paid for an alignment for the car. You know, they did everything they could immediately in the short run. But I felt like we lost two weeks of our sabbatical. We're still traumatized. There has to be some way this is made right. There needs to be more amends that need to be made on Costco's part. And then it was almost like the adjuster on their part said, you know, within the confines of the game, the rules of the game that I'm asked to play, the role, I can't give you more. Because I cannot quantify from my, from my position in the company, I can't quantify the impact it's had on you and pay you money to make amends for that. To do that, you have to bring a lawsuit. And I almost felt invited by him to do so. That's what it seemed like he was hinting at. And so I, I have all the pictures, I have all the receipts and the documentation. And I'm, I've been debating for the last couple of months, do I sue Costco? And I haven't consulted an attorney. Should I do this? Is it expensive in Washington State to bring Costco to small claims court? Are they going to eat me alive? What should I do? And so I've asked the game, okay, what's the short game? Okay, what's the long game that informs my short game decision? I have to think about, okay, all the energy and the resource and time it's going to zap from me if I'm focused on a lawsuit. Do I really want to do that? How much am I going for? What do I want? A few thousand dollars? Is that really worth? How does my short game decision regarding Costco, how is it informed by the long game, by the infinite game, by the ultimate game? How does this bring glory to God? Is there a win here that impacts the kingdom that God is building? And I, as a steward of my life, I have to ask and answer that question. And I think that I will play the very best short game. The better my long game is, the better my infinite game is, the better my ultimate game is. A criticism of the church, to get out of my example, back to us, is that the church is great at asserting that the ultimate game is the only game that matters. 
But the criticism, if I can say it this way, that the world has against the church today is that the ultimate game isn't transposing down to the infinite game, to the long game, to the short game. It's not. That somehow we are disconnected, that we are living life as if this here and now life is all there is. We're not thinking through the implications of the ultimate game and letting it transpose down to our short game. And that's the basic criticism. It's what the world calls hypocrisy. If you really believe that heaven is coming down to earth, that God created you to be a steward of God's creation, how can you be so abusive with creation? Christians of all people in the world should care about God's creation more than any other group because we understand that this short game we're playing on planet Earth, using these finite resources, is informed by the ultimate game. That's just one example. I want to give you three applications for our church, and then we'll close. Number one is, in the category of belong, relationships. The essence of being in relationship to one another is acceptance. We learn from Gottman, from uh, the Gottman Institute, uh, Dr. Gottman out of the University of Washington here, that in marriages, for example, on average, 60% of issues are unsolvable on average. So no matter how perfect your spouse is, no matter how awesome and amazing you are, there is going to be, on average, 67% of their issues are going to be with you for the whole of your marriage. And if you swap out and get another spouse, same deal. And then if you get a third spouse, exact same deal. 67% irreconcilable differences. Therefore, the name of the game in relationships is marriage. I mean, excuse me, is acceptance. The name of the game is acceptance. How do you accept? Well, you got to play the long game. The way you accept each other is not by thinking of acceptance as agreeing. You're not condoning. You're not saying, be just as you are. I like you to stay that way. And we're so afraid of sending that message, we don't accept one another. But that's not biblical acceptance. Biblical acceptance is, in the short game, I accept you just as you are. Because I'm very aware that my short game is informed by the long game of me edifying you. I want to be salt and light in your life. I want this relationship, our signal strength, to be so strong and so reliable that when you are going through a hard time, I want you to automatically think of me so that I can be there for you in time of trouble. I want to be your help. I want to be your mercy. I want to be your grace when you need grace and mercy and help. So boldly now approach the throne of our relationship and stay connected so that in the long run, in the infinite run, in the ultimate run, I can win you. That's acceptance. That's biblical acceptance. Understanding acceptance as a door, the only door through which transformation happens. So belong. Second is become, and that's prayer, is a specific application I have for it. Prayer is this 
formational activity that we engage in, but what it's really doing is when you're praying, the, the, what you're saying to yourself is, right now I feel overtaken by the short game. I'm under duress. I feel stress. I'm worried. I'm panicking. I'm fearful. I'm triggered, right? That's the short game. And when you pray, what you're doing is, God, I, mean, I, I want to invite you to give me the longer game. Would you please inform my short game heart and mindset right now? Show me what you see. Pull me above the short game. Cause my eyes to look up a little bit. It's so immediate down here. It's so urgent down here. Please help. So that's what prayer is. So I want to encourage you to pray this week. Whenever you find yourself mired in the short game, defined by the short game, stop and pray. God, give me the long game. Give me the infinite game. What's the game here? What's the objective? And then third, engage. This one is a little bit trickier for me, but I wanna, I've thought about this and I want to uh, share this with you. If you look in uh, our loop, uh, we have a giving section where it shows that how much our church people are giving every week. And uh, we are a uh, little bit over $50,000 in deficit right now. And that number is, uh, gives me a bit of a panic. You know, and I re recognize that millennial, the millennial generation, for example, they are the, one of the most generous generations. They give more than their boomer counterparts, right? So for all of you non-millennials who've been criticizing the millennials, they are giving more than you. They are playing the long game better than you. But they also play the short game because millennials will tend to give to things that are specific, things that they can control. They want to know where, to whom, and for what reason their money is going to. They want to know that, Right? And that's the short game. Giving to a church, like an organization like this, is a little bit more uncomfortable because you don't know where the money is going. It's not as transparent. It's not as clear. And so you hesitate to give. But I want to invite you as the pastor of the church today to give to the church. I would love if the Holy Spirit would convict all of us here and we all just gave more than we usually do, and we can knock out the $50,000. That would be amazing. I might even believe in God again if that happened. <laughs> but if, if you have the faith, if you have the long view enough to give to the church, I would really appreciate it. And so would the organization, so would all the ministry leaders. We can just feel at peace knowing that what we're doing is matched by the, those who are supporting what is being done. Second uh, point to engage is the short game as an individualistic consumer uh, is to say, if I go to this event, if I go to church on a Sunday, if I go to this meeting, what do I get out of it? How is it relevant to me? That's the short game. The longer game is, how do I benefit the group? If I show up, will people be encouraged? If I show up, will there be more resources, more help, more energy? Well, then I want to do that. Will it encourage the culture of the church? I want to do that. So think beyond your own benefit and gain and think about edification of the group. That's the longer game. I want to end with uh, this verse here from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has put the ultimate game in your hearts. And understand that all the other levels of games exist for his glory's sake. That's the only reason why we persist here on earth. What the whole game, the whole show is about. We know this because God has set eternity in our hearts. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that only God knows the whole framework of the game from beginning to end. He understands the rules. He knows how it should be played. And so we look to him to know how to play the game. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we uh, come to you today with um, sort of just an asking, I think, sort of a rescue me prayer uh, to lift us up out of the short game only. Short game that's not informed sufficiently by the long game, which isn't sufficiently informed by the infinite or the ultimate games. We want to run so as to finish the race. We want to play so as to win the game. God, how can we be as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents in this game of life? Help us to see with conviction what really matters. And I pray that that answer would frame every other thing that we engage in throughout the week this week. So God, I lift up our existence to you and help us to uh, bring glory back to you in Jesus' name. Amen.